This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And our next story comes from our regular contributor, Stephen Rosediak, who shares his story from a terrific book, Chicken Soup for the Soul, My Very Good, Very Bad Dog, which you can pick up at chickensoup.com. Here's Stephen about his dad's dog, Benny, and Benny's relationship with his mom. It wasn't that he didn't like her. It was more that Benny just didn't care about her one way or the other. The only reason he paid her any attention at all was because his best buddy did, and that was only for a few minutes at dinner time. Only then would Benny acknowledge her presence, and then only until his food was served. Surprisingly, she didn't mind getting the canine cold shoulder because she knew a sacred bond existed between a boy and his puppy. Even if this one-year-old dog wasn't quite a puppy anymore and the 69-year-old man wasn't quite a boy anymore. Unfortunately, one night, Benny's best friend became ill and people that neither of them knew came to help. They took his buddy away and Benny never saw him again. In the days and weeks that followed, he searched for him and several times he thought he'd found him. After all, his scent was everywhere, on his chair in the kitchen, on his coat hanging by the stairs, and even in his shoes, still waiting for him out on the breezeway. Benny became excited when he heard a car in the driveway or voices in the street, but in the end, it wasn't him. For weeks he moped and refused to eat, but then one day he realized something that had previously meant little to him. She was still there. That night, when they were alone, Benny slowly came over and sat at her feet. She gently began to stroke his shiny golden hair, and then something totally unexpected happened. She hugged him. From that moment forward, their relationship changed. And for each of them, the healing began. They would become inseparable companions who enjoyed taking long neighborhood walks and stopping to talk with everyone they met along the way. Whether watching Animal Planet on TV or doing nothing at all, they did it together. A team of two. Her confidant, and his new best friend. The proof of this relationship was revealed in a greeting card she routinely sent out to friends and family acknowledging holidays and special events. Depending on one's relationship with her, the card was signed, Love, Doris and Benny, Nana and Benny, or Mom and Benny. And those of us receiving these cards understood the importance of the closing salutation. We knew their story was one of recovery and rebirth, of two needy souls who found each other, and of the enduring friendship that resulted 
It was a good story, too. But like all stories, it had to end eventually. If Benny had one fault that clearly surpassed all others, it was that he wasn't immortal. As he approached his 13th year, his body began to reveal evidence of the passage of time. Their long walks gave way to shorter excursions, a consequence of his new hip difficulties. Other issues developed, and by early December, she wondered whether he'd make it through New Year's. And then, she received a devastating diagnosis of her own. They both survived the holidays, and for the next few months, the three of us spent practically every day together as she suffered the procedures that took her strength and eventually her hair. And Benny continued to be her most faithful friend and supporter. It was as if he knew that she still needed him. And in truth, she did. Although rising from his rug and walking required increasingly more effort, he struggled to greet her every time I brought her home from her daily treatments. His puppy heart still overflowed with unconditional love. His old body was still ready to snuggle. When her exhaustion forced her into her chair, I would sit nearby in the rocker, but Benny knew just where she needed him to be, resting at her feet. Benny continued to provide his love and support throughout the duration of her treatments. And when they were finally over, he died. Sadly, her healthy reprieve didn't last. For a second time, she fought the good fight. But this time, when she knew the battle was lost, she gracefully accepted the inevitable and had but one request that the ashes of her beloved Benny be interred with her. On a sunny November morning, we lay mom to rest with dad. And just as she'd asked, Benny was there too. As always, just where she needed him to be, resting at her feet. And that was Stephen Rossettiak's story, Resting at Her Feet. And again, that's at chickensoup.com. That's where you can find the story. And my goodness, as he put it best, this is a son recounting the story first of his father's passing and then of a dog, a beloved dog, Benny, passing, and then finally his mom. A story of recovery, a story of rebirth. As he put it, two needy souls, the mom and the dog, that found one another and needed one another. Benny's one big fault he wasn't immortal. A great father, mother, family, and dog story. A classic one here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite regular features, the Burning Question column with Heidi Mitchell. And you can see that in the Wall Street Journal. We love it because, well, it's just damn interesting. And this week's question, why are human ears shaped that way? Heidi, thanks again, as always, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And before we get into things, Heidi, we love to keep progress of your move into Chicago. Uh, You've moved from Brooklyn (laughs) to Chicago, and other than a great pizza crisis, which I know you're suffering from, because they actually consider that deep dish stuff pizza, but that's another thing. That's maybe another show. How how are things... I'm liking those hot dogs, the char dogs. Oh, yeah. With oh. all the stuff on them. Anyway, now I'm making myself hungry. Oh, no, no, um, no doubt. Someone told me don't, don't become a Cubs fan, even though it's so hard right now not to be a Cubs fan. Yeah, that's true. Hey, they, they, look, you, you've come at a good time, an auspicious time. I know. Right? I did. I brought good weather, and I brought the Cubs to the World Series. We'll see. Well, excellent. We'll, we'll keep tracking that because, you know, Americans <laughs> move a lot, and we are probably, as a people, the most itinerant, prosperous country in the world. I don't think. I wonder Finns, if that's true. That uh, might be true. Maybe that should be a burning question, Heidi. Why do we move so much? Why, do we Why move can't we so sit much? still? Yeah. Who knows? It's meta ADHD. <laughs> I think it could be. Maybe the whole country is. Let's talk about <laughs> ears, Heidi. What on earth made you and the crew over there at the Wall Street Journal think this one up? Well, I think maybe it's the outgoing president. And his very large ears had us all thinking about. He does have some big large. ears. Not he that there's anything wrong with that. I'm going to pull a Seinfeld here. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. This is on the list, and it came up now. And uh, I think that maybe we're all, like, slightly p- pining for the days when, you know, it was politics as usual, not politics as reality show yeah that's true you know one day i'll never forget this i was at an airport at jfk our acting teacher had assigned us to just watch couples greet each other uh, who'd not seen each other in a while and that we could tell the nature of the relationship by the greeting and it was fascinating well what we started fixating on was ears and i don't know why but they became very funny things to start watching because they really are weird looking ears they are weird looking and if you think as we're talking if you touch the top of your ear i'm not in front of a mirror but i have these weird ears that don't curl all the way at the top and they have it looks like a dog took a bite out of them or something they have all these little ridges at the top so i had asked the doctor about that um and he just said you know basically you would if you if you slap someone else's ears on your face you would hear totally different well because you're just used everyone has their own um way of hearing and they you hear differently if you have different ears slapped to your face which i'm sure there's been ear transplants done and maybe it was really weird so to, so, so the shape and size of ears make us hear better or worse well they we it doesn't really it's not quite like that it's more like you're you're only born with one pair and so that's just how you hear and so it's not it's already optimized for you for everyone you get used to it so so he was saying, if you know, if you had this ear transplant, you would it would just be super weird, and it would take time to get used to it because we each have our own um, sound signature that we hear. So if I took your ears, your huge, I'm sure, ears, and slapped them onto my tiny head. Um, <clears throat> it would be weird because I'm just used to what I've got. Right, right. And by the way, I love the part of your job, Heidi, where you take what's seemingly a silly question or just an odd question, but you run it down and you go chase the best experts in the field. <laughs> and, and this one happens to be a guy named Dr. Rickett. Tell us about oh Dr. Rickett. This is 
the best guy. I mean, it, w- it was really weird because I had such a hard time finding somebody. Um, and it ended up, we, I ended up with a, a guy who specializes in hearing aids. So he, he specializes in, in optimizing um, creating these hearing aids. And so he's at Vanderbilt University. And he was a great interview. He had lots of fun with this. But if you scrolled, if you're online and you look at the comments, if you scroll down, it just, there's 72 comments, and it devolved into this evolution <laughs> crisis at <laughs> the bottom of the page. So, you know, they say, don't read your reviews. I shouldn't read my comments. <laughs> no, no, you but shouldn't. But this guy, Dr. Ricketts, yeah, he's great. He was really um, very clear and um, had a good sense of humor as well, which is always a so, prerequisite for so somebody. So from the column, you wrote, the shape of the ear has a big effect on how one hears. Some animals, it turns out, have rotating ears. Humans don't need ear functions with up-down precision hearing, quote, since we're not likely to be attacked from above or carried off by a bird. Fascinating. Like, like a, I said, he has a good sense of humor. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I think if you're, if you're like a, an owl, your ears kind of go around, or there are other um, rodents that can do that because they could be you know, dragged off by some flying crazy thing, like an owl. Um, right. They can be dragged off. To, but since we're so high up on the food chain and we're so big, we don't have to have that kind of precise hearing like a dog hears at night and all those things that um, that we don't we don't really have to have such precise hearing. So you know we've evolved to have ears that do the best job that they can do, and and they're, they don't either. They hear up and down and know what's coming from above. You can kind of feel it. But we do have the, the positioning of the ears on either side of our head. You know, if you can imagine that, um, if you put a point in between them, you know, so you can kind of geolocate from the 3D of your ears. Um, try, you can triangulate, right, where that, where that is coming from. So we are able to do that by the very fact that our two ears are on either side of our head. Yeah. And what are the different parts of the ear, Heidi? And do they all have a different purpose? So they do. So if you start with the outside, the, the pinna is what is you see is what you see on the outside of your head, and that is kind of like a funnel. Um, it's kind of like a horn, and it sort it points slightly forward. If you can touch your ears and see how they kind of like point forward, and so that's gathering more sound from the front. And then what happens from behind is that it's sort it's called shadowing, and so the sounds behind you are sort of like muffled. So you're more you're more closely hearing the person who you're facing, um, which helps in, in lots of situations yeah. to be able to focus in on the person in front of you, right, and not let all the ambient noise around you get in the way. If your ears were flat against your head, like maybe you had them taped down, you might have a harder time <laughs> telling right, right. who's talking to you and focusing on the person. And then, and then inside, um, there's a whole bunch of different things happening um, inside, um, including, um, you know, your ear canal, which sort of it takes that horn and funnels the, the sound down, and it acts as an amplifier. But it's still in the two to four thousand hertz range, which is so you can hear sibilants and vowel sounds. And but it's not it's not a really high range, a wide range like a lot of animals have. And then at the end of that canal, um, where all your um, your earwax is lodged, um, is this sort of soft, the eardrum, which is called the tympanic membrane, and it's super sensitive to sound. Um, and then there's other stuff behind that that then signals signals your brain. And by the way, the, <laughs> the earlobe we noted here has no other function but then this. As we men are shaving and we hit it, it's there to bleed profusely oh. for the next three days. <laughs> I think that's the only purpose an earlobe serves. 
Well, you can read the comments and find lots of other purposes for your earlobe. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. By the but way, Dr. Rick, say, Dr. Yeah. Rick had said this, the ear is self-cleaning, a self-cleaning, self-oiling machine, so don't shove Q-tips in there. That was going to be my next question. What was, what, was that, what was that advice up to? Why did he say that? I think most of us do <laughs> shove Q-tips in there. Not only do most of us, but he even does. Um, it just feels so good. I don't know why, but I think what you're doing is you're, you're, you're compacting all that wax that's meant to be in there. So you're, you, have, you have little tiny hairs and you have wax and that's supposed to collect all this dirt and stuff that's coming in and then it's supposed to naturally expel it itself. I guess when you shower, when it gets wet, it will, it will expel occasionally that, that you'll see sometimes, um, this is gross, but you'll see some of those little bits of wax that come out. So when there's like a lot of dirt, it'll expel itself. So you're, you're not really supposed to stick anything in there. It's really a well-oiled machine that does its job pretty well. Um, however, Johnson & Johnson invented the Q-tip, and so many of us are addicted to this guilty pleasure. I clean my ears every morning, and my daughter will come to me, and she'll ask me to clean her ears out, and she's only seven. I do, too, <laughs> and I love it, and maybe one day we'll clear our ears together, Heidi. I mean, you know, whatever. Oh, That'd be a really... Oh, well, by the way, we'll do that on the air one day, Heidi. Yeah. That'd be really weird. <laughs> Fortunately, it's uh, it's you can't see us. <laughs> so that, thank goodness. And by the way, cleaning cl- cleaning your ear can actually dampen your hearing. Doctor Ricketts told us. Yeah, so you can. What you're doing is you're most of us like you're pushing that wax further in. So unless you're just like doing a gentle circle around the kind of the outer rim, usually people are jamming it into their ear. So you're basically compacting that ear wax. <clears throat> and I know for a personal example, my brother was having some weird um, hearing issues. He went to the doctor. The doctor did some suctioning thing and got this huge chunk of wax no, out of his gross. ear. Uh huh. <laughs> and he had it's totally gross. And he had just been jamming that wax in there for years. And wow. He pulled it out and he could hear like a charm. You hear that, everybody? So you learn stuff right here on Our American <laughs> Stories. Watch out with the Q-tips. It could be dangerous. Heidi, thanks as always for joining us. And we'll keep talking about Chicago. And, hey, try the Big Al's uh, meat sandwich and beef sandwich. There's nothing better. Again, Heidi Mitchell from the Wall Street Journal. The burning question, why are human ears shaped that way? This is Our American Stories. Get that finger out of your ear. You don't know where that finger's been. We continue with our American stories, and we love telling all kinds of stories here on our show, and some of our favorites are stories of songs. My goodness, we've done so many good ones. There Goes My Life, the Kenny Chesney classic, Light My Fire, and my goodness, the explication, the the story of that song by Ray Manzarek is terrific. The keyboardist for for the doors, 
Jesus, take the wheel. Give me shelter. My goodness, the story of George on my mind and how it came to be is as good as it gets. And today, we have Cole Swindoll's song, My Dad's Old Number. Faith brings us the story. There are many ways we deal with trauma in our lives. Some people talk about it. Some paint or some write. Musicians often put their feelings to lyrics and music. That's what Cole Swindoll did when his father died. The country music singer has written for people like Chris Campbell, Scotty McCreary, and Luke Bryan. And he's also released three albums for Warner Brothers Records in Nashville. Of course, being famous doesn't save you from the tragedies in life. And in 2013, on Labor Day weekend, Swindoll's father died when a truck he was working on overturned on him. The first song he wrote about this tragic incident was titled, You Should Be Here. A song of longing, wishing that his dad could be there to experience all the things he has in his career. The song was released in 2015. Five years later, Swindoll's writers Jesse Alexander and Chase McGill co-wrote the song, My Dad's Old Number. The last album was titled You Should Be Here, and that's the song I did write. Uh, probably the, you know, the most special song I've ever written about losing my father several years ago. And just the stories I've heard from that, I, I knew that I wasn't the only one. But man, to hear the stories, you, you realize how good you have it sometimes when you hear other people's stories. And it's, I found comfort in that. And, and just knowing how many people it's helped through tough times. This, I, I've called my dad's old number several times, and there's a lady that has it. I, I don't know who she is. I've, I always just hang up because I know she's not going to understand what... I'm trying to say, so uh, yeah, that's kind of what this song is, is, is just calling somebody saying, hey, this has been me the whole time calling. I'm sorry, this is my dad's old number, and I, I'm pr- probably going to call it again at some point when, when I need it. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a special song, one of the most unique written songs I've ever heard. Alexander, McGill, and Swindoll had agreed to write the song together. But when their session was due to start, Swindoll was asleep. So Alexander and McGill, eager to write the song, wrote it between the two of them. And by the time the singer was ready to join them, they had already completed it. Swindoll was bummed he missed out, but after hearing what they had written, he got over his disappointment pretty quickly. Losing his dad in such a tragic accident, Swindoll claims has been the hardest thing he has ever had to go through. I mean, it was in such a big time in my life. You know, I just got my record deal, chilling it was, you know, blowing up, doing well. And uh, But you got to look at that and, hey, at least he got to see that you know, kind of happened and knew I was going to be all right. But yeah, that's, there's been a lot of tough times, you know, but that's uh, definitely the one in the past, you know, it's, I, I, uh, I mean, I've definitely done that before, but I just think anybody that, you know, has lost anybody, doesn't have to be your dad or whoever, just lost anybody and has that, that number, you know, where the person used to call good, bad, whatever. And just, you know, when you lose them, you kind of forget about for, you're like, well, I need to call them. You realize you can't. And I think that's the specific I don't know, idea of this song. It's, I've had songs about losing people, but this is just that, you know, that idea of, man, that feeling, that emotion of not being able to, to call them anymore. And that's what, I have chills just saying that. I've heard the song a hundred times, I think, but that's me and my bus driver, the first time he heard it, we're riding down the road and he's close to his dad, you know, and it scared him to death, like hearing that, like one day I'm I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to call. And even if it makes you call somebody you love, tell them that right now, whoever... That's, uh, you know, that's, I'm doing my job as, a, as an artist and songwriter. That's, uh, that's one of the best written songs I've ever heard. Somebody just asked me, the other day, they were like, do you have any voicemails saved? And I was scared to even answer because 
You know, I honestly don't know. I got to look back. To, I, I hope I do. But, but I remember when we did the You Should Be Here video, uh, we had a clip at the beginning of when I called my dad and told him I had a record deal. And I remember the, my videographer that day was like, why? he was like, hey, I want to film it. I'm like, wow, I'm just calling my dad. He's like, you never know. You may want this one day. And I'll never forget him saying that because I thought it was so cool. I'm like, I'm just calling him to tell him that. And I have that on video. And that was the first time I heard his voice, you know, since I lost him. And it was just, man, it's uh, it was tough. But that's, hey, I'm I'm real person, just like anybody else. That's why I relate to, you know, country music fans, especially because I've, you know, any song I'm singing about, I've, I've been through it. And, um, you know, I know there's other people that need to hear it. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Faith, and we love telling these stories of songs. So many of you may know my dad's old number, some may not. And thanks to Cole Swindoll for, well, even thinking about putting something like this and setting something like this to music, a story like this. And to the writers, who in country music do such a great job, and the singers who are always thanking those writers. And I have my own story of a number, it was my mom's old number. My dad's still with us and has moved from the family home, but 201-387-1305 in northern New Jersey, Handel. Well, that's the number I'll always remember. I called it any number of times after my mom passed, and, well, luckily, my dad answered. And then when my dad left, well, I had to call. I had to know who was living at the old family home. And my mom will never answer that number. And, well, some things you just never get over. And there you have it, the story of a song, and now we bring you, in its entirety, my dad's old number. This is Our American Stories. I'm sorry, ma'am, don't hang up, no, I ain't selling nothing. I don't know what I was thinking when I called. Yes, I would. Yeah, I was just down on my luck, having some trouble with this old truck. And the guy that used to pick up, he could fix anything. Sometimes I forget these ten digits ain't my lifeline anymore. Every now and then I dial them up when life gets tough or when the brave score. Sorry about the one ring hang-ups Early morning, late night wake-ups It was just me In case you wonder You've got dad's old number I learned it by heart when I was six He never did change it I've caught it in trouble with good and bad news and breakups, yeah, you name it. Sure, I've got some friends I can call, and they're always there if I need to talk. But good as they are, it ain't their fault. Sometimes I just need him, and sometimes I forget these ten digits ain't my lifeline anymore. Every now and then, I dial Sorry about the one ring hang-ups Early morning, late night wake-ups It was just me In case you wondered You've got dad's old number So I apologize 
Cause there's a damn good chance When I meet that girl, get that job And I need to tell my best friend You're probably gonna hear from me These ten digits ain't my lifeline anymore Every now and then I dial them up When life gets tough or when the brave score Sorry about the wandering hang-ups Early morning, late night wake-ups It was just me, in case you wonder Yeah, you got dad's old number Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from history to your stories send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org and we'll produce them up and put them on the airwaves some of our very best pieces have come from you the American people have well you all have great stories to tell and beautiful voices from all over this great country It's been multiple decades since a nine-year-old kid shared his Coca-Cola with Pittsburgh Steelers star Mean Joe Green in one of the most famous commercials in American history. Most of us have seen that commercial many times, but the story behind the ad is just as great. Here's Greg Hengler. Joe Green was one of the most feared defenders in NFL history. In 13 seasons as defensive tackle with the Pittsburgh Steelers, the 6'4", 275-pound Joe Green was a 10-time Pro Bowler and a 2-time Defensive Player of the Year. He became an NFL icon and a first ballot Hall of Famer. And then there's that name. Here's teammates Franco Harris and Andy Russell. Is there a better name than Mean Joe Green? I mean, that name just flows. And I ask kids about that, and I say, Mean? And they say, Joe Green. He asked me one time, he said, Andy, why do they call me Mean? And I said, because you're mean. (laughs) Here's Steelers chairman Dan Rooney. We're playing in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia has the ball. And if they can make a first time, the game's over. They made it. They made the first time. And he went up, took the football, and threw it in the stands. And I said to my father, this guy's special. If he's that intense, if he's going to do something like that, we got a guy that we want. Some people ask that question, what does Joe really mean? Yeah, that was the perfect name for him. He hated to lose. That was part of his demeanor. He's here to win. He's here to beat that guy across from him. And he's not going to be nice about it. 
But inside the man who was the centerpiece of the steel curtain defense that led the Pittsburgh Steelers to four Super Bowl championships in six years was something unseen by the public eye. Here's Joe Green giving us a peek. When I was a senior in high school, my class voted me to be class president. And I declined. I think about that a lot. And it was basically because I was shy and didn't want to have to talk in front of the class or the student body. (laughs) But in 1979, Green's rugged public persona and life changed dramatically after being selected for a television commercial by Madison Avenue creative wizard Penny Hockey. We were asked to do an exploratory, that is to take the Coca-Cola brand and see where else it could go in its communications. The guys were sitting there saying, okay, well, who could we get? Well, we could get Lynn Swan, Terry Bradshaw, Franco Harris, Mean Joe Green. And I said, wait, there's a guy called Mean Joe Green? Is he mean? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, that's perfect. We want the most intimidating human being we can find. And boy, did we get it. We wrote about 10 different storylines, and the very first one that we came up with was, let's take kind of a pathetic little kid who's just awestruck over some kind of superstar football hero. Uh, The kid has nothing to offer except he has the Coca-Cola. He gives the superstar the Coca-Cola, the superstar drinks it, shazam, he's a changed person. In the commercial, Mean Joe would have a memorable encounter with a trembling nine-year-old named Tommy Okan. My mom and my dad were both in television. As to our future weather, well, we expect the rain to... My mom was on-air talent. My dad was a director and a producer. I had started doing commercials probably when I was around five or so. So by the time we did the Coke commercial, I had probably done about 30 or 40 commercials up to that point. Let's go. Keep it on top. I think you fumbled. <laughs> And the first day when we shot the commercial, there was a lot of downtime because they were doing a lot of work to the set. And uh, because of that, there wasn't a lot to do. So, of course, I had brought a football and went over to Joe and asked if he'd throw a football around. And he said, sure. He developed a sweet little relationship with Tommy and made Tommy much more comfortable. Okay. Now, giving the line, Joe. Okay. Got it. They were trying to get him to drink the whole Coke. And they had him maybe do that a couple of times and just said they were gonna the guy was gonna blow up after a while. He went through an awful lot of soda. And you know the the legend of course that he drank eighteen sixteen ounce bottles, equivalent to two and a quarter gallons. (laughs) Needless to say, when I start to shoot, the first thing out of my mouth was a big burp. Talk about absolutely perfect timing. Super Bowl programs. Super Bowl souvenirs. Super Bowl pennants. The commercial ran on the Super Bowl, and then they won. And the rest is history. What could be better? Mr. Green? Mr. Green? Yeah. Want my Coke? 
That's okay. You can have it. Okay. Joe Green was probably the first black male that was cast in a, for a national brand. It was the fact that he was black and the little boy was white. It was a shock at that time, and people experienced it and really resonated to it. I don't know where that jersey went. I don't know if Joe took it back or who got it. I do know that that Christmas I got a package, and uh, it was a signed... Mean Joe Green jersey that I uh, still have to this day. But Tommy was not the only child whose life would be positively influenced by Joe Green. Here's Joe's wife, Agnes. I think uh, it changed our lives a lot. It changed Joe's personality a lot. Because so many kids were looking up to him, he decided he really wanted to be a role model for other kids. appeared with the Muppets and probably Elmo and was on children's TV shows. Well, you know, I used to be afraid of my own shadow. And then everybody told me that was silly. What are you afraid of? Well, lots of things. Like the whole offensive line of the Rams jumping on me. Yeah? We'd be walking around and little old ladies that I know didn't know anything about football would come up to Joe and talk to him. Listen, you're not a mean guy. He's just a big old teddy bear. Doing the Coca-Cola spot did change the image. I enjoyed it. I liked it. It made me uh, more approachable. To this day, I'm still rather amazed. I mean, it's the commercial that will not die. Although he was known to the world as Mean Joe, he is known to his grandkids as Papa Joe. When we went to uh, North Texas and you saw me interacting with the people and you were surprised. A little bit. Why? <laughs> um, I guess just because we know you as grandpa and then all these people are trying to talk to you and yeah. coming up to you. So okay. it's a little new. Yeah, these two, they had the same reaction. You didn't know. Like, whoa. The father of three and grandfather of seven credits the Coke ad with keeping him in the spotlight since his retirement in 1981. My public life, my football life, has been kept alive by the commercial. I think few people might know me as Mean Joe, but a lot of them know me as the Coca-Cola guy. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Greg. The commercial that won't die. And it's so interesting that mean Joe Green became, for so many young people, sweet Joe Green, always to his kids and grandkids, Papa Joe. And what a terrific story about life. And in the end, the civilizing effect of kids on adults. 
Mean Joe Green's story, the Coca-Cola commercial story that the world fell in love with, here on Our American Stories. And to get all of our work, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. You'll get our five best stories each week. Again, Mean Joe Green's story here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and of course, military stories, and love stories, and even stories about death, personal struggle, you name it, we tell the story, and send your stories to us at Our American Network, because you and your stories are the hour in Our American Stories, and we produce them often here on this show. And by the way, we'd love to hear your stories about landmarks in your town. That's favorite restaurants, joints, bars, places to go see a band, a place in a park, whatever. Send those stories of your favorite landmarks to ouramericannetwork.org. And Pink's Hot Dogs is a landmark hot dog restaurant in Los Angeles. Richard Pink is the owner And we love to hear from small and big business owners alike here on Our American Stories and the story of Pink's Hot Dogs. Well, it's as American as it gets. Pink's Hot Dogs was established in 1939 by Paul and Betty Pink. It was established with just a little push cart. And my parents were out of work at the time, and they were looking for employment, and they ran across an ad for a push cart. And it cost $50. And my parents did not even have the $50. They had to borrow it from my grandmother. And the push cart was available about two miles away from here. And my mother went down to where it was located and wheeled it all the way up Melrose Avenue and put it right here on the site of La Brea and Melrose. And she rented that site for $15 a month at that time. And it was the hot dogs were 10 cents and Cokes were a nickel. And believe it or not, there wasn't even electricity on the site. And they had to buy about a 100-yard extension cord to plug into a neighboring hardware store. And that's how they fired up Pink's in 1939. And for the next two years, they just had the hot dog cart. And then in 41, they built a smaller version of the building that you see today. And then in 1946, the very hot dog stand you see is what it looked like back then. And we haven't changed a thing since then. My parents had curbside service, and people would drive up and park, and they would bring them out a hot dog and a Coke, and that's how it was back then. It's the entertainment capital of the world. And we've got Paramount Studios, 20th Century Fox, Universal Studios. They're all in and around here, and all the production offices are here. And so when celebrities came out from whatever city they were from in order to get discovered, they didn't have any money at the time, and they could afford a hot dog. And then they started putting their 
pictures up on our wall. Now, today, we have over 200 celebrities on our wall. But in those days, they put their pictures up there because they were hoping that some of the directors and producers would discover them. They came in for a hot dog, and then, you know, they would get discovered. We've got the Ozzy Osbourne dog, Rosie O'Donnell. We got Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart actually waited in line here for about 45 minutes and created her own hot dog. And, you know, we've got a number of celebrities that have come in, but also the, the movie Mulholland Drive was filmed here, so we got a Mulholland Drive dog. We've got a Harry Potter dog. We got a Lord of the Rings dog. I mean, we got a lot of exciting hot dogs. It turned out people tended to want to order a hot dog by name rather than just a chili cheese dog. They wanted to have a name attached to it. But the chili cheese dog, that's what made us famous. People are always looking for new, something new to market their, their property, uh, whether it's an amusement park or the, even the airport for that matter. And so they came to us and they said, look, you're world famous and we really need something that's very special, very unique. And that's how we really we came to Cedar Point. They had tried us out at Knott's Berry Farm, which is probably the most famous amusement park in all of Southern California, maybe all of California. And then the owners of Knott's Berry Farm said, you know, you're selling so well, I know you're going to do well at Cedar Point back in Ohio. So we'd love you to come back here. We want to bring your brand. We want to bring the concept, the image, the whole celebrity connection back to Ohio. And we said, fine, because we really like the way you operate pinks over at Knott's Berry Farm. I understand that we sell more hot dogs in California than New York and Chicago, believe it or not, maybe because of our weather, okay, and a lot of people, you know, bring hot dogs to picnics throughout the year and so forth. But in terms of pinks, I mean, we're on the cable channel, we're on the food network, we're on the travel channel and all that. That has put out the word so whenever you come to Los Angeles, you want a great hot dog. And I think every bit is good and probably even better. I'll challenge New York, I'll challenge Chicago, that our hot dogs are even better. And that's what those people that come in from those cities tell us. Pink's is at the corner of La Brea and Melrose in Hollywood. We are open from 9.30 in the morning until 2 a.m. every day, except on the weekends, 3 a.m., and in the summers to 4 a.m. It's the place you come after you've spent the evening at a club, and, you, and Pink's is a party. Yes, it's very delicious. Um, I got the spicy Polish dog. It's really, really good, but really spicy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I got the same thing, and again, it's spicy, but it's, it's really good. It's probably one of the best hot dogs I've ever had. I think it was called a stretch uh, hot dog with chili, and uh, I thought both the meat and the bun were just out of this world. I, I would say it's the best hot dog I've ever had in my life, and nothing is close to it. Come all the time. We live here, uh, so I go by uh, from my house to my office. I go by here uh, twice a day. Um, I ordered a chili cheese dog, and it was really good. I liked it a lot. It was very good. I liked it. Yeah. And they are all right, by the way. Mine's the Brando dog. Try it sometime. You're ever in La Brea? And Melrose in L.A., this is the place to go. Best to go late night. It's even tastier. No one knows why. This is science, folks. It's not my opinion. It's a proven fact. But I've had pinks as early as 10 a.m. It does not get better. And, uh, by the way, Mark's Hot Dog in Bergenfield, New Jersey, a close runner-up. The world's best onion sauce. But if you like a chili cheese dog, the buns are perfect. The chili's perfect. I'm getting hungry just talking about it. Again, if you have a place, a landmark, a favorite joint, 
Tell us about it. Just go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, Pink's Hot Dogs. Their story here on Our American Stories. American stories, and our next story is a story about love and family, faith and freedom. It's brought to us by our own Greg Hengler and the good folks at the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Visitor Center in Church Creek, Maryland. Let's take a listen. On July 4th, 1776, a marvelous experiment in democracy was conceived. With a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, its noble, if imperfect, parents pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor to bring to fruition this heroic idea. A new government in which all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But decades later, Deep within the backbone of the American economy, a large protruding tumor was causing unimaginable misery. Here's historian James Horton. By 1840, cotton was the most valuable thing this entire nation exported. No, it was more valuable than everything else this nation exported put together. By 1860, the worth of slaves The dollar value of slaves was greater than the dollar value of all the banks, all the railroads, all the manufacturing facilities of this nation put together. Slavery was no sideshow in American history. It was the main event. Slave owners have rightfully earned their wicked reputation. Strangely, the largest pro-slavery institution, the one that made slavery law and kept it in order, has consistently been absent from the abolition educator's list of evildoers. Don't forget that these people were held on the plantation by more than just the white families on the plantation. That ultimately, if you had tried to defeat the institution of slavery, you would have had to defeat the power of the plantation, the power of the local government, the power of the state government, and ultimately the power of the national government. That slavery was protected by the full force of the United States of America. So that when you think about people running away 
or people striking out against the institution, they are in, embarking on a pretty ambitious uh, journey. That journey was conducted on tracks. Those tracks were part of a system of escape that became known as the Underground Railroad. But like grape nuts, the Underground Railroad was neither underground, nor was it a railroad. Here's Harriet Tubman's scholar, James McGowan. There was an often told story that it started around the mid-1830s after the building of the railroads in the, uh, started in this country. Uh, some slave catchers were chasing a slave, and I believe the area was Ohio. And uh, he read, the slave ran away into a wooded area. And uh, the slave catchers followed him there, and uh, he suddenly disappeared. It was as if he ran away on an underground railroad. Well, it became a joke, but the joke caught on. When the uh, abolitionists and the anti-slavery people got involved with helping slaves escape, they took that term on. And uh, those who were helping slaves escape, they called conductors. These were the people who went right into slave territory and uh, got the slaves and brought them out. And when they brought them out, they brought them to places where they could get food and shelter. And these places were houses or barns where abolitionists and anti-slavery people were at. And they called these houses stations. And the people who lived in these houses and who provided this uh, information and this stuff, they called them station masters. And then others who became involved, like they, for example, they contributed money. They called them stockholders. And those who watched, they called them pilots. Any term that they used in the railroad, they used to describe the, the people who worked in the Underground Railroad. In an effort to survive and maintain better lives, enslaved Americans turned to someone they already trusted and relied upon throughout their lives. Steal away to Jesus. Pennsylvania had been chartered by William Penn in 1682 and heavily settled by the Quakers, a Christian organization who had condemned the practice of slavery. With the religious revivals of the 17 and 1800s, called Great Awakenings, abolition spread into Delaware. Here's historian Bradley Skelcher. There was a belief that American colonists had lost their spirituality, and religious itinerant ministers traveled around this region preaching the gospel. As a part of that Great Awakening, more and more people began to encourage their fellow church members to question the morality of owning their fellow human beings. In the end, enslaved Americans ran not so much from the cruelty of their master, but toward that most fundamental of all human rights, freedom. As Americans, we want to think of ourselves as really priding ourselves on personal freedom and priding ourselves on being willing to help other people achieve freedom. And so the Underground Railroad in that regard becomes the all-American story, the story of those who refuse to accept slavery and those who refuse to accept the denial of other people's freedom. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, Prepare yourself. We are about to go back in time 
and walk in the footsteps of one of America's greatest heroes. And I prayed to God to make me strong and able to fight. And that's what I've always prayed for ever since. Harriet Tubman. We all know her name. But who was this woman? Harriet Tubman was born into slavery in 1822 and raised in eastern Maryland with four brothers and four sisters in a 20 by 20 foot slave cabin with no beds and a dirt floor. She suffered decades of beatings, neglect and fear and saw three of her four sisters sold on the auction block, never to see them again. As strong as she was, she was also fragile. After getting her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by a slave owner at a village store, Harriet struggled with frequent seizures and blinding headaches. Name your price. In 1849, Harriet's slave master, Edward Brodus, recognized her diminished capacity and tried unsuccessfully to sell her. I don't know, Edward. She don't look too healthy to me. In spite of this, she began to pray for her master. Harriet's faith was the foundation that everything in her life was built on. Not an abstract idea of Christianity, but an active, constant communication with the Almighty. She sought her master's conversion. Oh, dear Lord, change that man's heart and make him a Christian. I prayed all night long for my master till the first of March. And all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. One day, to her horror, she learned that she would be sent to a chain gang in the far south. The tone of her prayers shifted. So I began to pray. Oh, Lord, if you ain't never gonna change that man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out the way. Edward, let me help! Edward! Edward! The prayer proved prophetic. Tubman's 48-year-old master died suddenly one week after the prayer, and she was filled with remorse. Oh, I would give the world full of silver and gold if I had it to bring that poor soul back. I would give everything. But he was gone. I couldn't pray for him no more. There was one of two things I had a right to. Liberty or death. If I couldn't have one, I would have the other. And when we come back, more on the life of Harriet Tubman. This is Our American Stories.
Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand. Precious Lord, lead me home. And we return to the story of Harriet Tubman. And by the way, you can catch all of our work at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Let's continue with the story. In 1849, at the age of 27, she heard the Lord's voice urging her to flee northward. After an initial attempt to escape failed, when her two brothers lost courage and forced her to return, she set out again two days later by herself, hiding during daylight hours and traveling by night, fixing her eyes on the North Star for direction until she made it to Pennsylvania's free soil. This 100-mile escape on foot north through the Underground Railroad took a week. What makes Harriet so unique is that after she escaped, she did the unthinkable. She went back. Over 11 years, she made 13 return trips to the South and helped deliver over 300 family and friends to freedom. Yes, I made my way out of slavery and into the promised land. I boarded that train and found my freedom. But I realized straight away that my freedom meant nothing if my family wasn't free neither. That's why I come back, for my beloved, for my blood. And when I come back and my family can't make that train, I don't waste a trip. I bring friends and friends of friends back to the promised land. And I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track, and I never lost a passenger. Harriet never lost because, as she said, her God maintains a perfect record. In December 1850, Tubman executed her first mission, the rescue of her niece, Kasiah, and her two children, a son, and an infant daughter who were scheduled to be sold on the auction block. With the help of Kasaya's free husband, John, Harriet arranged an unexpected and daring escape. On the steps of the Dorchester County Courthouse in Maryland, the crowd gathered that day. Kasaya was led up the block in front of those old courthouse steps. The bidding started. Kasiah's husband, John, stood in the crowd. Their eyes met. And John raised his hand and bid on the woman and children he loved. John won the bid. 
but he had no money. God must have been watching. Just then, the auctioneer up and decided to go to lunch. What's more, he forgot to chain Kasiah up. Psst, now go, go. Kasiah, John, and their children hid in the nearby house of a white woman. They waited till nightfall and sprinted to the waterfront. Together, they boarded a small boat. Mother, father, and children in a silent sailboat crossing the wide Chesapeake. They hid in Baltimore five weeks until Harriet got them train tickets to Philadelphia. They eventually made it all the way to Canada, safe from the long arm of slavery. She always made rescue attempts in the winter, but avoided going into plantations. Instead, she waited for escaping slaves, to whom she had sent messages, to meet her eight or ten miles away. Slaves would leave plantations on Saturday nights, and because of the Sunday Sabbath, they wouldn't be missed until Monday morning. Only then did their reward signs get posted, which would then be taken down immediately by men Tubman had hired. Tubman also carried a gun, a six-shooter, and was not afraid to use it. She felt her revolver offered some protection from the slave catchers and their dogs. And Tubman demanded strict obedience from her fugitives. A slave who returned to his master would likely be forced to reveal information that would compromise her mission. One time, a man gave out the second night. His feet were so swollen. He couldn't go any further. He'd rather go back and die if he must. I said, I was going to lay a bullet in him if he didn't move. Henry, get up. We've got to move on. Remember, Henry, dead Negroes tell no tales. When he heard that, (laughs) he jumped up right away and went as well as anybody. Henry made it to freedom. And years later, Harriet was asked whether she would actually kill a reluctant escapee. Yes, because if he was weak enough to give out, he'd be weak enough to betray us all and all who helped us. And do you think I let so many die just for one coward man? So the Lord said, go down. Harriet Tubman earned the nickname Moses because just as Moses followed the voice of God while leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, she too led so many of her people from bondage in the house of slavery to the promised land of freedom along the Underground Railroad. The world, see, don't make sense. It's broken. So the slaves, we take on another perspective. We see by faith. Our faith means everything. There's more to reality than a person's eyes can see. 
you hear this faith in the spiritual songs, a weeping, a praying, a pouring out of emotion and pain, and somehow of hope, even though we enslaved, chained, whipped, hope still lives. She used spiritual songs as coded messages, warning escaping slaves of danger or directing them toward a safe path. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Harriet felt God protected and hid her during the time she had to lie in a wet swamp or bury herself in a potato field. I will praise your name forever. When God provided safe passage, she always gave him the glory. I heard God speaking to me saw his angels and I saw my dreams there were times I knew things for they was going to happen I could see trouble coming and I could go the other way there was times I fell into sleep but was completely awake more aware than when I was awake things I can't even describe, child. Things I can't even say. And when we come back, the rest of the story, Harriet Tubman's story, here on Our American Stories. final segment of this Harriet Tubman story. Let's pick up where we last left off. In one instance in 1856, the word spread through the countryside. She's here! And four young men answered the call. What you men want is a bounty hunter. As they were making their escape, they saw posters with a $2,000 reward for their capture on them. As they made their way through the woods, Harriet suddenly stopped. God told me to stop, so I stopped. He told me to leave the road and turn left. We came to a stream, but no way across. The young men, they said it was too deep, the water too cold. And I said no such thing as too cold and walked in. Water made it up to my shoulder. But then I came out the other side. The boys followed. Later, Harriet learned that a group of desperate men seeking the $2,000 reward had been waiting on the path they were traveling and planned to seize them. 
If she had not responded to God's still small voice, they would have been captured. And the $40,000 reward slave owners posted for her capture was always in the back of her mind. Harriet learned about the posters, which described her age, height, and that she couldn't read or write. Once in a train station, Harriet heard two men talking about her. They were trying to decide if she was the woman in the poster. Harriet was carrying a book. She opened it and pretended to read. The men then decided that it couldn't be her. Tubman became a friend of many of the best-known abolitionists and their sympathizers. White religious crusader John Brown referred to her in his letters as one of the best and bravest persons on this continent, General Tubman as we call her. Here's professor of constitutional law Paul Finkelman and James Horton. The people who are involved in the Underground Railroad are breaking a federal law. Uh, What they would have, of course, made the argument, and they did it all the time, is that there was a higher law, the law of God. It was dangerous to be involved with the Underground Railroad, no matter what color you were. I mean, there are white people who spent years of their lives in jail. Here's Tubman scholar Judith Bentley, historian Clara Small, and again, James McGowan discussing Tubman's relationship with one of the most prominent figures in the history of the Underground Railroad, a devout white Christian named Thomas Garrett. When she started going back to bring more people uh, out of the Eastern Shore, uh, she needed financial backing. She needed places to stay. She needed contacts, and Garrett was that, that contact. Thomas Garrett had money. He had social position. And as a result, he was given Harriet money. He also gave her uh, passageway and shoes, and clo- as well as clothing and food. He would tell the story in his letters to two ladies in Scotland who were sending money over to Harriet Tubman, how she came to his house and practically demanded money. She would say to him, for example, well, I know you've got money for me because God said so. And he would tease her. He would say, well, how do you know I got money for you, Harry? And, you know, I give my money to most of the black people here in Wilmington, and I don't have any money. She said, oh, no, you've got money for me, and you've got shoes because God told me. And he would be nonplussed at her saying this, but he, he would have it. God bless you, Mr. Garrett said this of Harriet. I had never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to her soul. And her faith in a supreme power truly was great. During the Civil War, Tubman served as a nurse, laundress, and spy with the Union forces. She taught freed black women how to make things that they could sell in order to earn a living. Harriet Tubman would not be satisfied until every person could experience true freedom. After the war, she made her home in Auburn, New York, and despite numerous honors, spent her last years in poverty until a white woman named Sarah Bradford visited Harriet and listened to her life story. In 1869, Sarah Bradford published Harriet's biography, Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman, and another in 1886, The Moses of Her People. All the money they earned went to Harriet. Finally, on March 10, 1913, 
the 93-year-old Harriet Tubman caught pneumonia and knew the end was near. She asked her friends and family to gather around her bed, as she had done so many times before. Harriet raised her voice and gave instruction to everyone. Sing, swing low, sweet chariot to me. The eyes of those in the room brimmed with tears, and the people tried to stifle sobs as they sang softly. Just as her friends and family sang the final verse, she whispered her final words, I go to prepare a place for you. Flags flew at half-mast in Auburn. She was buried with military honors in Fort Hill Cemetery in New York. Booker T. Washington delivered the eulogy. Many letters were found in Harriet's room after she passed. One letter had been refolded so many times that it had almost fallen apart. It was from the great leader of the abolitionist movement and Harriet's friend, Frederick Douglass. Here's what he wrote. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in the public, and I received much encouragement at every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way. I have had the applause of the crowd and the satisfaction that comes of being approved by the multitude, while most that you have done has been witnessed by a few trembling, scared, and foot-sore bondmen and women whom you have let out of the house of bondage and whose heartfelt God bless you has been your only reward. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witness of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. Here's Jay Meredith, whose great-great-grandfather owned the village store where Harriet Tubman got her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by the slave owner. Anybody that would know anything about Harriet Tubman would have to um, recognize her as a true American hero. And here is the main reason why, is that if you think about Harriet Tubman, you're going to see an African-American woman in 1849, okay, when women had no rights, black women had less than no rights. She was five feet tall. She was illiterate. Again, she was enslaved, and she was able to accomplish feats that nobody else could accomplish. And to me, how can you not admire somebody like that? You know, I mean, you've got a woman who has everything in the world going against her, everything. And I tell people when they come in here, you know, whether you're white, whether you're black, no matter, even if you have prejudices, if you look at an individual like a Harriet Tubman, you know, you have to admire, even sitting here telling the story, it gives me goosebumps. It is here, through Harriet Tubman's work in the Underground Railroad, where we can see both fugitive and free Americans, white and black, drawn by a cause that compelled them to come together. There have been times in American history when we have been able to form alliances cross-racial lines. The fact is that we don't hear as much about that as we ought to. And it's important that we do, 
because it's awfully hard to imagine that we can form racial alliances in the 21st century unless we understand that there's a strong tradition that we can draw upon. And although there have always been hostilities, there have always been difficulties across racial lines, there have also always been some people who were able and willing to put their fortunes and their lives on the line for other people. And I think that's a tradition that we need to draw on. That's a tradition of the Underground Railroad. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Lord, for the year when Jordan rose.